So, uh, <clears throat> so welcome. Ill will and aversion. My all-time favorite way to suffer. And what's perfect is there's always something wrong. So I'm in luck. Before we uh, illuminate the, the kind of dead end of that approach to life, um, I want to say a couple prefatory comments. So, um, in, uh, in pharmacology, some, some medicines are known to be, um, kind of highly selective. Their activity is limited to a kind of narrow range of receptors, yeah? Like Selexa or Lexapro, like very selective, yeah? And then uh, other other medicines have a much kind of broader range of activity. Just as a, you know, it's not just serotonin; it's also norepinephrine, dopamine, whatever. Yeah. And those medicines, those drugs that have a kind of wide range of targets that achieve their therapeutic efficacy through a wide range of, of mechanisms, sometimes called dirty drugs. Yeah. Not selective, but dirty drugs. And um, the Dharma is a dirty drug. <laughs> yeah. You, you, and that's not heretical, right? You get you get where I'm coming from, right? It's like Dharma is a dirty drug in the sense that it has many different mechanisms by which it heals us and wakes us up, and we tend uh, to be focusing on one mechanism, yeah? We tend to kind of elevate one way that the practice is supposed to deliver for us. And then we kind of hold it up above all the other mechanisms, all the other ways. And we tend to be um, compulsively looking for evidence that something is working. You know that feeling of just like, okay, is this working? Is my life as judged by this moment on a trajectory towards something good or not? And we look to the only place we can look to discern the effects. Is it working? Am I on the right trajectory? We look to our conscious experience. 
And then we make a lot out of our conscious experience in that moment. And we make even more uh, about um, one facet of experience, namely how active the discursive mind is. And so we make that metric mean so much. But um, first off, uh, I would say even, even concentration cannot be really assessed at the surface layer of the mind. Samadhi, this kind of settling in, feels, um, feels more, you know, like bodily, more porous, even if our discursive mind is quite active. And, um, and secondly, uh, samadhi is one, is one mechanism of healing, but it's far from the only one. And purification is another. And the hindrances hinder concentration, but they are perfect for purification. Perfect. And this is, after all, the path of purification. And so, quite naturally, we get the impression that um, the practice is about is about the peaks and the valleys of practice or this kind of like intrusion, this weird interlude between peaks. But um, the practice is about the ascent, the peak, the descent, and the valley. At every point along that continuum there's something that is uh, begging to be known. And we have to have a lot of grace with that because um, the, the, the descent and the valley they have one of two tastes. The taste of purification or the taste of suffering. And purification not utterly free of difficulty, but it tastes different than suffering. And we develop a taste for it. And so all this to say that um, no matter what's happening, no matter what's happening, there's some way to practice freedom. 
and I, I use that word practice, like as in the way one rehearses, practices, practices a free throw in basketball. We're practicing being free even when we don't feel it. The what and the how, the what, the what we attend to, the how we are with experience, and the how, the how is a very big how. Yeah. If we as Vipassana teachers were more concerned with the what, we, we, um, we would wake up later. <laughs> we definitely wouldn't just sit and walk. It'd be a lot more entertainment. Yeah. But we're actually about the how the how we are with experience. And we bring so much to, to the moment, our, our kind of um, models of how the world works. And so it feels like we, we look out and we see the world. But in a deep sense, we look out and we see ourselves. We see our mind, not the world. Some uh, researchers um, wrote, uh, all, all thinking is wishful thinking. Yeah. All thing I saw that, I was like, okay, all thinking is wishful thinking. In other words, thinking and wanting are inseparable. Any attempt at knowing is suffused with our motivations, with our how. And so it's not so simple just to be mindful, just to pay attention. Because the nature of the seeing, the knowing is suffused with our motivations. And so we're starting to see how, um, how our motivations uh, shape the view, shape the view. Um, what we want is not separate from what we see. And in retreat, we get to really investigate the how the ways in which our wanting shapes our view, the ways in which our motivations shape our view. 
and sometimes our approach is to try to just change the view and sometimes that's important the, the Buddha said like yeah wise view we begin with wise view but sometimes actually there's no way to have wise view until the motivations the how shifts and specifically the how the way the how is infused with craving. So here we get to play, to explore. And... um, we can we find the more the more craving the more world the more craving the more me like it it it, it craving changes the texture of experience the density of experience it becomes more dense And so, yeah, the more craving, the more world, but the less craving, the more life. We're not reborn into flatness. But we're uh, noticing, noticing what craving, sensual desire, ill will, aversion, what this does to the view, the way this kind of uh, infuses, infuses, suffuses the field of experience. And so here we're doing what we can to soften our longing and letting the view follow experiencing the world in a new way. As a a child, um, I had this kind of very, very precarious combination of factors. Extremely sensitive, zero equanimity. You get how that could be a problem. Yeah. Like, before I even knew, could even imagine there was something like the first noble truth, I knew it. Yeah. I was so sensitive to yeah, kind of to everything, but to, you know, just the sense of um, the intensity, the ongoing intensity of human life, of social interaction, the intensity of, of a kind of longing and uh, intensity, the sensitivity to the suffering of others. 
really the, just a sensitivity to like the, the barrage of imperfection. And everyone was sort of acting like things are okay. And it actually confused me. And, um, but paired with that was really something very close to zero equanimity. Yeah. And that puts somebody in a precarious position. And, um, anger, aversion, ill will, uh, really became my best attempt to govern the first noble truth before I even knew what to do with it. I was just scrambling to govern it and to control it, to, to quarantine its impact with aversion. And um, our, our emotional, you know, histories, um, they leave deep grooves, yeah. And Mara, Mara, Mara has, um, Mara, this kind of embodiment of suffering in the Buddhist tradition, this figure that is, embodies suffering. Um, and Mara, Mara has a trump card for each of us. Yeah. The card that gets played that very reliably alienates us from the Dharma and from our own uh, hearts, yeah. And um, we got to know that card well, how it gets played, how we buy it, what it costs. And just to stay oriented to, uh, you know, I, I see you, Mara, right? As in the suttas, I, I see you, Mara. Uh, that, uh, that's a profound practice. So in, in response to, um, in response to a, a kind of any stimulus, an animal, in some ways you could say has three, three choices, approach, avoid, ignore. Approach, avoid, ignore. And those roughly translate into greed, aversion, delusion. And, um, Maybe we say there's there's a fourth option, um, wisdom, yeah. of trying to um, trying to understand happiness at a deeper level. And of course, there are times to approach or avoid or ignore, but um, we can't trust all of our impulses all of the time around that. We investigate our view. And um, 
there are there are, there's always something wrong, you know. There are always a million things wrong. And how how will we be with that? How will our heart make space with that? What stance will our heart take in response to this? And um, and often what we do in one way or another is cling, yeah, cling, the, the clinging of aversion. But um, clinging is not merely, uh, not really a, a, a bad problem, it's a bad solution, yeah? It's a bad solution. Like it is not, and we have to learn this, I don't know, maybe a million times. It's not possible to cling our way to deep happiness. Yeah. But the tricky thing is clinging kind of works. Yeah. It kind of works. It works a little, sometimes. There's some consolation prize, even though it's not actually, um, a way to, to peace. And so, it kind of works insofar as there's some noxious stimulus. We don't like something. We don't like the, the itch on our forehead and we scratch it. We don't, you fill in the blanks. There are many things, right? And we actually uh, can kind of influence the tide of pleasure and pain. And by that creates the illusion that we control it, that we govern it. And then when we find that we can no longer govern the first noble truth, we are confronted in the, the depths of our own helplessness. And so we're actually training, we're training to take the first noble truth, the imperfection of samsara, this realm of existence, the imperfection of samsara, we're learning to actually take it into our heart and rather than harden us to actually soften our heart. And so, this, this kind of way that, um, that, that clinging gets reinforced, we sort of cling more or less successfully in a moment, yeah? And then it, it creates the hope that maybe this is a kind of durable way of addressing the intensity of life. But it can't work out in the end. And clinging is only ever a stone's throw from hatred. And so the second hindrance, ill will, aversion, anger, 
um, from the suttas. Um, if there is a pot of water heated on the fire, the water seething and boiling, a person with a normal faculty of sight looking into it could not properly recognize and see the image of their own face. In the same way, when one's mind is possessed by ill will, overpowered by ill will, one cannot properly see the escape from the ill will which one has arisen. Then one does not properly understand and see one's own welfare, nor that of another, nor that of both. That was just something touching about that, you know. One, one cannot recognize one's face. One cannot properly understand one's own welfare, the welfare of another, the welfare of both. We become alienated, alienated from the Dharma. In this kind of anger, we, um, we fall under, it feels like a spell. It feels like, like, I don't know, Mara casts a spell. And um, and one of the important discoveries in this realm is that, uh, yeah, sometimes there may be a kernel of wisdom in our aversion, something that needs to be heard, something we need to listen to. Sometimes there's that kernel of wisdom in the aversion, but invariably there is also the seed of delusion. There is something that is not being known, not being seen. And to look deeper, to look deeper into the conditions of our own heart, mind, into the conditions of the heart, mind of another is to come to more love. So sometimes, sometimes there's something we need to listen to. There's some kernel of wisdom. There's something we need to learn that we actually need to extract from the flames of aversion, the pot of boiling water. And until we actually extract that, and maybe it's just like, oh, that's not okay. Yeah. Maybe that's what it needs to be extracted. But until we do it, we cannot let it go because it feels like we're, we're throwing out that kernel of wisdom with all of the delusion too. This is uh, philosopher Agnes Callard. She says... Um, as an analogy, consider a fever. When you're feverish, you're not healthy in that you can't engage in your normal productive functions. Something's wrong with you. Your body is awry. Fever is a form of sickness. But a fever is also a healthy immune response to the presence in your body of some kind of infection. If I lost my susceptibility for fever, that would be a sign that things had gone very wrong. 
it would be a way of it would be a way of getting sicker, not healthier. So while it is clearly not best to be weak, feverish, sleepy, it might nonetheless be the best option on the table. A fever is a healthy way of being sick. I have much the same view about anger. A fever is a healthy way of being sick. Maybe, in some moments, in some cases, anger is a healthy way of suffering. But it's never the last word. It's never the last word. There's always more to be seen. Ruth, um, Ruth King said, uh, anger, anger is not transformative, it's initiatory. Yeah. It may initiate something, but it's not the vehicle of transformation. Dalai Lama says, um, Generally speaking, there are many different kinds of afflictive emotions, but out of all of these, uh, hatred and anger are considered to be the greatest dangers because they're the greatest obstacles to developing compassion and altruism, and they destroy one's virtue and calmness of mind. This is, as I said, a topic a very, uh, very close to my heart uh, um, because I did spend so many years being angry and, um, and I could always explain why, you know, I could always explain why I was angry and, um, but that actually distracted me from looking at the mechanisms of my own anger. And so I, I was so busy externalizing, sort of trying to like uh, locate the seeds of my own anger outside, trying to um, yeah, trying to control the first noble truth. And the Buddha said um, that frequently giving unwise attention to aversion strengthens aversion. Giving unwise attention to aversion strengthens aversion. And um, it really is possible to just live in the kind of dream nightmare of aversion and uh, some people that's all they do and then it's time to die and uh, and it's too late to let go and that is a very dense form of suffering Uh, and 
so a good death starts now. The instructions to be aware of when ill will is present or absent. So simple, deceptively simple, but um, if we notice the absence of aversion, that actually feels good. Non-aversion, non-aversion is wonderful. That feels good, it reinforces it. And if we notice there is aversion, there is ill will, just the noticing means that something else is also true in addition to the ill will. Mindfulness is present. And if mindfulness is present, then we're no longer fully under the spell of Mara. there's a little bit of space. And that little bit of space means a lot. Here in this practice, we are approaching what is avoided. We are exposing our heart to it. And we really want to look directly at these kind of tides of aversion and ill will, subtle and dramatic, historical and current, personal, global. And um, we look directly at it so that we become less intimidated by our anger, less intimidated that it feels actually safer to hold our aversion or hatred. Mm. A lot of our emotion is a kind of, um, uh, like a, a sheep in wolf's clothing. Yeah. Normally the saying's the reverse, I think, yeah. There's not a wolf in sheep's costume, yeah. This is this is a sheep dressed as a wolf. Yeah. But until you actually really open to it, it will appear so much of our life will appear to be wolf, not sheep, until we actually feel life in our tissues. Radical kind of permission for this to, to sweep through, to feel life in our tissues. Till we do that, we remain intimidated And in the face of intimidation, we're either on the suppression end or we act things out. So 
the stance we take is one of radical accountability. And th this is not a way of shaming oneself, right? But there is this sense of radical accountability, as what one of my teachers would say. And um, the see, in other words, the seeds of anger lie within. And it feels like often we're angry about something, but sometimes we're, we're just angry. It feels like problems find me, but sometimes it's more like the defilements find a placeholder. And the nature of ill will is it's it's so it's so externalizing. It just it just looks out. It looks out, and we're turning the gaze back. And so we, the, the from the uh, Tibetan traditions, that like the phrase, drive all blames into one. Drive all blames into one. Now, it, it's tricky because it's not that suffering doesn't have any external causes. It's not that the world is fair or just or humane. It is not. It's that for the purposes of this training, we are temporarily uninterested in the external causes of suffering. Does that make sense? We're temporarily, we're, for the sake of our training, we are boiling down the complexity, the blame which we could apportion everywhere. We're boiling it down. We become radically accountable. And that in some ways is simplistic. In some ways is simplistic to drive all blames into one right here but it is very useful for freeing our hearts of greed, hate, and delusion. Metta. Oh, it feels so good just to say that after all this. Oh, metta. That word, that word comes to that I don't know. I got. I'm in some kind of. That word does something to me, you know. Just over the years, um, just the the associations that kind of are so rich. Metta. And for for one who who suffers, not by through uh, delusion, not through greed and craving so much, but, uh, but through, through aversion. Uh, metta is like, yeah, just utterly necessary. And so, um, this is said to be a kind of like, this is the, 
the antidote, yeah, this kind of warm, gentle friendliness, this love in the face of goodness that is metta. And um, sometimes we're so invested in our aversion that it can almost be a little kind of a flash of a certain kind of shame in beginning to recognize it's um, the delusion of our aversion. You know those moments where it's like we're kind of like all in on aversion and then it starts to crack. The bubble of that suffering starts to crack. We can start to like feel love, wisdom, tranquility again. But it's like we kind of double down on the aversion, yeah? Because to actually own it, it it's like we'd have to sense some shame. And so a part of us is reticent, but we, we gotta do it. We gotta do it. This um, loving kindness, um, it's a, it's a kind of love that is empty of the stress of possessiveness and control. A love that is empty of the stress of control. In our lives, quite naturally, our love and our control get tangled up. And um, the spirit of metta, of loving kindness, is a love that is, uh, that is free, free of the strain of ownership and possessiveness. There is um, something about this time about this time this age the kind of existential questions the ecological questions the kind of the the grief you know and um and there's there's something about this kind of this season of grieving that has made me so sensitive to goodness it's just uh yeah for me in a way, the tears never f- feel far, and um, but they're they're actually only elicited by goodness. But um, yeah, when I see it, it's very moving. I see it here, there, very moving, and. Um, in a way, maybe we say the whole of the path is becoming sensitized to goodness. Yeah. Metta, metta, 
is to be moved by goodness. It is to see, it is love in the face of goodness. The proximate cause of the arising of metta is the recognition of goodness. Yours, mine, everywhere. And we, we, uh, come to be moved, moved by our own goodness. That's, that's where the, the metta grows, the sense of just being moved, like beneath all of the pros and cons of me, not parasitic on any trait, accomplishment, characteristic, it's like beneath all of that, we um, find something to love. And we see that enough times, just enough times, we're moved by that enough times, we uh, come to see this in the eyes of others. And it, it has a kind of um, force to it. So, um, this is, um, maybe we can say like, Certain sense, the 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 deepest form of uh, of self esteem, yeah, a self esteem that's not um, subject of constant renegotiation. What do we take refuge in? You know, we start to feel our hearts, the goodness, and. Um, And that becomes a kind of place to which we return. To the extent that we need a home, that becomes it. So, um, say a few more things and close. It's not true in every case, but um, generally, generally, suffering is associated with the collapse of space. Kind of, uh, kind of suffering is like something claustrophobic about it, and um, aversion. Aversion really, um, it narrows the view we chew on our problem. Yeah, we sort of trying to hate samsara into submission or something. And it's like, it's very, it's very narrow. And, um, and metta, one of its functions is very much like purification, 
one of its functions is to begin to soften us, to broaden us, to bring in the peripheral vision enough to soften us enough that there's space for our sorrow and suffering. And sometimes this is kind of an element of equanimity, of making peace with imperfection, of, yeah, just uh, this kind of radical non-interference with experience that characterizes equanimity, upekka. But it's also, I feel, a function of, of metta, of loving-kindness, a sense of it just opening the gates, allowing us to feel whatever needs to be felt. And metta has this function of, of permitting more in. The ambiance of love, of care, permits more in. And that doesn't feel good, but when that love meets the pain, um, the kind of, the, there's a, a softening, a deeper kind of compassion is born. And often it begins with this just warm friendliness to a kind of sense of metta in the face of all phenomena. Yeah, what would that be? To treat all phenomena non-violently. That doesn't mean we say yes to everything. It means that this this experience of like non-violence, non-violence with respect to all phenomena. And so we begin to forgive samsara. We have to forgive samsara. That doesn't mean we are become passive. We may become more emboldened and active, but we forgive samsara. Dukkha is to be comprehended, the Buddha said. Suffering, the incompletion of any moment is to be comprehended. It's very hard to do that without love. And so wisdom and love, the two wings of awaken, they they interpenetrate. story in the suttas of, I, I, maybe I'm misremembering, but as I recall, a kind of like debater coming up to the, the Buddha to say, uh, 
kind of challenge challenge his teaching you know like okay you you know it's going to sort of show him up and obviously this the, the as the story goes this is discerned by by the buddha and, and the response you know like so the the this kind of aggressive debater says what is your teaching yeah and uh discerning the state of mind the the buddha's response was i teach non-contention with all things non-contention with all things Where does the debate go from there? Where do our debates go from there? Let's just sit for a moment. And please, um, um, please pick up whatever is uh, useful for you and uh, leave all the rest behind. It's so beautiful meeting with you one-on-one and it creates a certain kind of uh, sense of like the wildness of saying one thing to all of you because you all are different. 
yeah? And so then it becomes your job to actually find what's useful, yeah? It's part of how you, um, part of how you practice is you sort of find what's useful and you pick it up and uh, leave the rest behind. Okay, thank you.